Hey everybody, it's Christine. Welcome back to the Rose Woman Pod. Today I have my first guy guest and I wanted to speak a little bit about that. If you've listened to me before, you probably know that I think that a woman's liberation is probably only possible with equal and equitable men's liberation on a different dimensions and that the idea of a patriarchy or a matriarchy are both imbalanced and that what we're really looking for is a holism, a holacracy between the gender is a perfect balance and that that's how the future of our species will be structured and ruled. In any case, uh, I found Robert um, through his book. I was looking around for someone who could speak to women about men and around how to dive into this idea of liberating your man to feel or working with him to feel. And I came across Robert. He wrote a book called Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them in 2018. And very quickly, we discovered that we had a lot more in common. For example, he was deeply involved in an organization called One Taste in San Francisco in the early 10s, aughts, whatever that's called, uh, which was focused on slow sex and on tuning into women and tuning into their vibration um, through some practices, which he talks about here, but by slowing down and tracing the woman's body and then uh, the woman herself tracing her own experience in her body, creating a deeper capacity for intimacy. So he's going to talk a little bit about that in the pod. But aside from men, I found the questions that Robert was asking or posing to the world around him, like, would you rather be safe or real? or a conversation around why white lies kill intimacy or how anger ends intimacy and also his commitment and willingness to be in an ongoing journey with his own spouse and his openness about that. Uh, Very, very inspiring. So I'm happy to welcome Robert today and I hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, uh, we love feedback. You can write to me, christine at rosewoman.com. Uh, you can come and give me feedback on the iTunes or anywhere else that you're listening, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Thanks so much and enjoy the pod. Hi, Robert. How are you doing? Oh, I'm really well. It's a pleasure to be here. So I don't even know where we want to start. Can you tell us (laughs) a little bit about the journey that you have been on to get to really being this model of authentic relating and communication, both uh, for men themselves as themselves and for men in their relationships with their lovers and partners? No, thank you. I'm glad to be a model, a model of someone who went on the journey for sure. Um, The way I like to tell my story, I was normal until I was 28. And when I be in my normal, as I was just living the life laid out to me by society, my religion, my parents, my father specifically, which meant corporate job, downtown San Francisco, uh, suit and tie every day, IT, uh, 401k. And then at 28, uh, 1998, I went to Burning Man and everything just went just etch-a-sketched from that very experience of seeing a different part of myself, seeing something else that existed besides this well-treaded version of myself. And that Mm -hmm. led to exploration of sexuality. It led to uh, taking workshops, uh, having being uh, some of the worst moments of being totally embarrassed by myself to being motivated to find out what it means to be a good man, a man who can listen, a man who could be in the presence of women and understand them. 
I started One Taste in 2004 with Nicole Daydon and did that for 10 years. I left 2014, totally burnt out, and came to Venice Beach, California, just uh, trying to figure out what was next in my life. And since then, I've started my own business, which is half CFO, executive coach, communication, team building. The other half is podcasting, uh, life coaching, relationship coaching. have a podcast called Tough Love and also finished a book, Unhidden, a book for men, and those confused by them in 2018. And uh, just here to be of service to help men understand how to be a good man in this crazy 21st century. I love the intro. A Burning Man was a big turning point for me also. I went mm. a little later than you, but I was doing a similar thing. I was CEO of a company in Chicago, mm-hmm. and I came out, and there were no business cards. There was no suit. There was no uh, you know, briefcase. You were just you naked in front mm-hmm. of a bunch of strangers. And for those people who are listening who haven't uh, been to Burning Man, who aren't big West Coasters, there's tons of documentaries and clips out there now because hundreds of thousands of people go. But when Robert went, what was it about twenty five thousand people it at that like point? It was like seventeen or eighteen thousand. It was it was fringe. It was totally fringe. Now Burning Man is right. sort of more mainstream, but back then it, it was the yoga people, it was the massage therapists, it was the doulas, and I was this yuppie, totally fish out of water, like what am I doing here, sort of thing. But yeah, it was a, it, an amazing experience. I'm happy to report to you that um, two of my boys went for the first time in the oh, last couple of years when amazing. it was really giant. Yeah. And they had the same experience, though, because the the experience of being untipped, like who would you be in the absence of social expectations? Mm-hmm. And who would you be disconnected from all of these infrastructures that support that vision that your father had for you? You know, mm-hmm. they were they were confronted with the same things, even if it's considerably more commercial. So. The first one, the first thing that Robert mentioned, Burning Man, check that out. Um, and then the second thing, before we go into the main meat of the program, I think it's worth mentioning this, th- describing more about One Taste and this framework of, of a decade of your life that um, taught you this tune-in practice and a little bit more about what One Taste was and what it does for men and what it does for women. I can start a little bit earlier than One Taste to really give a frame of who I was. Um, my origin story, how the moment the wake-up call came actually in 1999, about seven, eight months after Burning Man. And I was taking my first workshop in San Francisco with a guy named Erwan Devon, who's still teaching. And we were doing introductions uh, in the circle, and I went first. And I did my introduction, which I thought was smart and intelligent and you know sharp and was waiting for accolades and approval. And I had this thought like he was gonna invite me up to teach with him. And instead, Erwan said, hey, do you know your wife's crying? And I was sitting right next to her, you know, a foot away from her, and I had no awareness of my words, of my actions, and she never felt safe enough to describe, you know, what was going on for her and how I impacted her. And then Erwan did the most awful thing. He said, okay, who's next? And I got to sit in the burn of that experience. And I had two choices. One was to stand up and go back to the status quo. The other one was sit and sit in the burn and find out what it was inside of me that had created this situation. And I stood and it was difficult. And that was really the moment of like, wow, all the things I thought I knew and who I was and was was full of what I call distortions, full of, you know, just not clear, not good or bad, just distorted. 
And that was the spark of my journey 20 years ago. And uh, I've really been moving since then. I mean, the, the idea of being numb, not only to the person who you love, but also uh, to your own feelings. That, that moment is such a powerful mo- picture you just painted. Yeah, it's a, it was a hard, I mean, I remember it was March 20th, 1999. It was over 20 years ago. And I can still remember the sensation of him saying that. And I can still looking around the room at these 20 people, these 20 strangers looking at me with these accusing eyes. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not the guy who would do that, but I am the guy who would do that. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, I, I got to understand this part of me. I have to understand what just happened. Oh my God, that's so great. I'm so glad that you went the direction you did into the inquiry. Um, it's very hard to be present, you know, without trying to impress people. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, or it, it can be, particularly with the, with the upbringing that it sounds like maybe we both had a little bit of. Okay, so you, you have this experience. You continue to go into the inquiry. Um, what happens next? So it was basically five years. I met Nicole six months later. Uh, with another group called the Welcome Consensus. And then we had many experiences. Um, and then in March of 2004, uh, we were actually living communally uh, in a house in Brisbane, California, which is south of San Francisco. And we had started to t- our own teaching class and you know just started rev up something. And I came home from work. I was a computer programmer at the time. And she said, I think it's time to open the center. And she had mentioned the center once on a walk about six months prior, but the image of that walk came full force. And she said, I want a place in San Francisco. I want it in Soma, south of the market, uh, two floors, hardwood floor on the top for yoga, concrete on the bottom, and I want it to be affordable. And I was like, you're crazy. You'll never find that. Well, two days later, she found it. And we went to this uh, location at 7th and Folsom in San Francisco. And we signed the lease. The landlord didn't talk to anyone else. We'd look at other spaces. We had found our center in San Francisco. And the initial concept was a pleasurable place for your body to be. And there were all these places for spiritual health or mental health or physical health, but there was none for your sexual health. And so we wanted to be a place for people to come to be able to explore your sexuality, your sensuality, to learn how to relate. And that was the start of One Taste in the summer of 2004. That is a time when sexual health uh, certainly wasn't as discussed as it is now. Mm -hmm. Completely. You were really a pioneer. We were. In that. We were crazy. But it wasn't, it it was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. (laughs) Well, that that might be true. Yeah. But but the One Taste experience wasn't about, like, how do you have better sex with someone as a sort of, like, it, it really strip people down to what they were made of mm-hmm. and and created a, fra- a framework of identity and feeling and receiving sensation and patience, all kinds of things, breathing before you really got into the idea of how am I, how can I have a, a better relationship with someone else? I mean, this is what I remember mm-hmm. from being back in San Francisco in those days, that the idea of better sexuality started at a much more core level with a person than just, hey, here's some tips on how to touch someone. Yes. Well, we had a practice called orgasmic meditation. The practice uh, at a very basic level was taking the most dexterous part of one person's body, their index finger, and stroking the most sensitive part of a woman's body, 
the upper left-hand quadrant of her clitoris in a practice for 15 minutes without commerce, without expectations, without OZs, you do me, I do you. And it taught two main things. This was my experience. One is it taught uh, a woman to receive without expectation of return. And it, it taught a man, a stroker, you know, women are also strokers, all genders, I like to be inclusive, but it taught men who were pretty numb and dumb how to touch and how to feel and how to receive feedback and how to notice. And it, it changed everything in my life, this practice, because where I was numb and dumb, evidence of that time in that workshop, it taught me how to notice the finest nuances of a change of energy or sense and so now someone could walk in the room and I can feel the difference and go, hey, how's, how's it going over there? Because what was once numb and dumb, got, I got taught by this basic touch and the truth telling. It was an incredible experience. This, this tuning up to an exquisite noticing. Can we just talk about that a little bit? So if you're not doing an orgasmic meditation practice, what are some things that you think are helpful uh, for people to learn the first thing to do is just to notice that you want more or confront hmm. that there's a major mm -hmm. issue in your relationship. People are moved by inspiration or desperation. Most of us tend to be moved by desperation, uh, not having the sex life we want, too much porn, too much food, too much shopping. Uh, you know, every relationship ends quickly. It, it's a moment where you just notice that there's something in your life that's not optimized, that's not exactly the way you want it. When you're in that moment, then you can say, okay, I want to do more. I want to move from where things are, which are good. I want to move them to better. Once you have that motivation, once you have that commitment, just like anything, then you can start to make a practice out of how to uh, just do better and better in terms of noticing. And that is like anything else. You want to learn to play tennis. You get on your court and you, you practice your uh, your serves and you practice your, you know, one stroke and another stroke, learn, want to learn piano, you get, you do your chords, you do your scales, same thing with noticing, you just say, I want to build a practice of how to notice. And that's really the first step. Hmm. That I'd sometimes go into San Quentin and do these victim offender communication classes, hmm. we work a lot with people who've been you know, really badly traumatized, yeah. traumatized enough to do damage to another person physically. Mm -hmm. And and the what what we do in there is when a big emotion is passing through the room, someone's telling a story that is kind of getting people choked up, we just collectively start to acknowledge by putting a hand on the chest and a hand on the belly, mm. and everyone takes a deep breath together. And to see a room of men who are willing to acknowledge the feeling and not turn away or make a joke, but just to drop into their body mm -hmm. that moment mm -hmm. and breathe together and feel it together. Um, the no, and and they, when they start, the program is a year long. And when they start with that initial noticing of emotion or sensation, it's um, a, there's a lot of contraction and resistance. And by the end, it's almost a welcoming mm -hmm. of the inhale and this chance to sink into what's really happening together. Mm -hmm. So both individually, I think it's powerful, but also as a collective process, you know, when you can really be in the noticing and the feeling with another person. So think about men's groups and how they do that. Or mm -hmm. do they do that? Do men's groups do that in general? Well, I've led 
over 100 men's group at this point. And here's the funny thing. So we used to run gender groups at uh, One Taste. So the men would go in one corner, the women and you know whatever um, whatever gender you identify, you would go. And so the reports from the women's group is they all they talked about was sex. And in the men's group, all we talked about was feelings. And so there was just this this support because in the world, a man related to his feelings, a man related to his softness, a man related to his feminine is looked at as weak. And, and there's, a, there's a persecution. This should be nothing new. There's a persecution of men. And so it's kind of beaten sometimes physically out of us. Don't be a girl. Don't be weak. Don't cry a little baby. And so once you give men permission, encouragement, once you demonstrate to a man that your feelings are right and welcome, there's an outpouring. And I've seen it hundreds of times, men bawling. And, you know, I taught a, I taught a weekend's course called The Ignited Man. And men would cry and other men would hold him. And there would just be this beauty of all this repressed sensation and energy and feelings and belief systems that got released. And it was sort of like a, a the, wall, the, the dam would break and the waves would come. But that is just an exquisite experience that most men don't have the opportunity to have. Most women don't know how to hold their men in that. Most men don't trust women to hold them. And so we keep this locked inside deep, deep, which is significantly impacting the men, their relationships, the children of the men, et cetera, et cetera. We don't um, have a lot of dialogue around that in the context of Me Too, with that is, and I have felt that from the beginning that it's flip sides of the same coin. You know, that you can't talk about persecution of the female without there being a conversation around the inverse persecution of the male. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that I, I love that you gave us that little glimpse into what happens when the dam breaks mm-hmm. and this longing for being able to be in their wholeness also. Mm-hmm. Completely. Yeah, to the patriarchy, which I'll say a charged mm-hmm. statement, was co-created and continues to be co-created by all genders. The patriarchy was not created just by men. The patriarchy was co-created by men and women and all genders. And it continues. And the patriarchy is extremely harmful to men and women in very different ways, granted. But it is harmful for all genders. And so... Uh, there's a lot of pushback uh, towards men around the patriarchy. And it's right. The pushback's right. And uh, how do you, like, you want all those feelings to come out. All the feelings are right. You want them out in the room and air and, and to, to, to be allowed out. And men are being significantly impacted by the patriarchy just as women are. So if you're a man who's, you know, in the middle of it and you get an awakening to this, sense that there's more Mm -hmm. and you see sort of behind the curtain that the patriarchy hurts men just as much as it hurts women Mm -hmm. but in a different way Mm -hmm. what happens then how do you where do your guys go to to begin unwinding that story in their own body in their communities in their companies and uh, and what's what's that process look like well we're we're very blessed to live in the most information-rich time Every day, you know, there's got to be thousands of more Facebook groups and articles and Medium and Twitter and, you know, there's just, we live in a plethora of time for more information. Uh, There's some great books out there. Uh, There's just amazing things. And so 
if you have this awakening, if you have this noticing, if you have this one moment of thinking, ah, oh, there's something more out there, go with it. And you can do it in secret. You don't have to tell anyone. You can start to explore. You can go to the classics like David Data or Iron John. Uh, you can look at some of the more recent ones. Um, you know, Cleo Stiller, Modern Manhood is a great book. Um, there's some great teachers out there that hold amazing men's groups. Um, John Wyland is a, is a friend of mine who runs great programs. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Man Talks is an amazing. Um, you can find all these on Facebook. So I would just say, like, find something in there to, to feed your brain so you don't feel alone. That's what most men feel. Most men feel alone. I'm the only one with this thought. I'm the only one who feels isolated. I don't know what to do. And so the first step is go out there and research and see what's out there and what's possible. And what and what can women, assuming it's a heterosexual partnership, what can women do to give to allow space for that? If, if it's true what you're saying that women won't and I believe you, women don't really allow their men to drop into this softness that they that there's a kind of a bullying quality that can come from the feminine in this regard. Mm. What would you tell a woman who wants to give her partner freedom to do? The first thing a woman can do is to own her own anger and rage, to do the work to understand that yes, every single man, and I, I'd support that hundreds of men, thousands of men and people in women's lives do really horrible things. I'm, I'm not trying to minimize this. Um, you know, every, the, the, the impact of sexual assault or physical assault or even words, catcalling. It, we live in a culture where women are being bombarded by uh, men's hunger, men's thirst. And so I don't want to minimize that the women's right to be angry. And Me Too was the most important social event in my life because it gave women's voice. It's interesting how black, you know, the George Floyd to me is very similar. It's just bringing to surface the voice that wants to be heard. So Me Too and Joy Floyd are, are two sides of the same coin in my head. Um, but for women to do in present time is to do their work on themselves, to do the inside job, to, to understand and deal with their anger. Because a lot of women's anger towards their partner is not their partner. It's the, the tens, the hundreds, the thousands of experiences they've had before their partner. Their partner has become... Uh, and it's ironic because they probably trust their partner to let this part out, but they don't know how to communicate that this has been happening their entire lives. So if women will do their own work and say, I want to be free of this anger, this frustration, this PTSD, this trauma, and then say to their man, I want you to be free of your trauma and your PTSD and all your distortions. When you can do that and say, let's go on this grand adventure together. Let's find some medium where we can both feel supported individually and then as a couple and share notes and share successes and share viewpoints. That's how, in my mind, a relationship moves to a more beautiful, optimized place. This is uh, this invitation to freedom, to joint freedom to giving space to experience and release all the old stories. This is a, such a beautiful way to go about it. Mm -hmm. Because the opposite, it seems to me, is a hardening. Like you're seeing even in men's groups, you know, this incel thing mm -hmm. and, and other, all the people on the edge who are holding giant machine guns thinking that's masculine mm -hmm. at the Michigan courthouse, yeah. you know. That seems to be a hardening of the 
patriarchy and 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 the women who vote against their own interests uh for the patriarchy mm -hmm. those both seem to be a hardening into the status quo so without this invitation to freedom where would somebody go except to deepen the commitment to the stories they grew up with mm -hmm. i mean it's it's safe a lot of us you know there's a jim collins book good is the enemy of great uh it's we we're happy in our status quo and my point is, if you're happy in your status quo, then stay in your status quo. But if you know there's something more, if you can feel it. And now I, I want to throw up an important caveat, a warning in here. Uh, when you start your road to freedom for yourself, first and foremost, but then for your partner, it could lead to the, the ending of the romantic relationship. And I know this personally. Uh, my wife and I have been together for five years. She is the most amazing woman I've ever been with. Our communication is the most, and we started the spiritual path with the agreement that freedom was more important than the relationship. And we've hit some rough patches, not from the normal couple issues, but more where she's going on her spiritual path and where I wanna go on my spiritual path might not match. So to support her in her freedom, to me is more important than the, the sustaining of the marriage, quote, the marriage, for her to, for me to say to her, I want you to be as free as possible, uh, is to me the most liberating thing I can do because then I know if she's with me, it's because I'm aiding in her freedom rather than what we normally do is we imprison each other to keep each other small, to stay in the status quo, which is ultimately the killer of our freedom. Amen. I, that, that's been, for anybody who's listening, you've probably heard me talk about that uh, before around, you know, when you decide to change, if there are people, it's just like coming off of an addiction. Yeah. The minute you start to stop to behave the way mm -hmm. other people are, uh, have been expecting you to behave, what, uh, there's a wonderful writer, Greg Bear, who talks about unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And that unconditional love is the releasing of all uh, getting behaviors, like manipulative behaviors that come in relationship. And so many women have been socialized to try to, oh, you know, be cute, be performative, whatever, to get their the loyalty and the support of the masculine in their life. And I think that part of the repressed anger and rage that you're talking about is all of this performative stuff. Mm -hmm. But then if it does if it stops working and they leave anyway because <laughs> they're seeking freedom, then you're like, you feel a little bit like you got you played out this game mm -hmm. so hard mm -hmm. and when and lost the game yeah. instead of this other invitation, which is, wow, what if we were both completely on our purpose, mm -hmm. on our Dharma? Um, uh, it's it's not a very social socially supported model of relationship until you find the right community, I would say. Mm -hmm. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's assume we get through this. Uh, process of coming into, I, I, I do want more. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I have more to express, more to offer, more ways to serve the world. I'm willing to do the work. I commit to my own freedom. I commit to the freedom of my partner. And, you know, now we're getting down into the, 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 the sort of the tactical components of, for example, how do I speak truth? Um, and this is something that jumped out at me when I was looking at all of your beautiful profile sites and the work you've done of safety. Do you want to be safe or do you want to be real? Mm -hmm. 
And and that seems to be, that's not like a one-time decision. You're making that decision 10 times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only in your relationship. So maybe let's let's explore that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Safe or Real was a, a workshop I did in New York City. Uh, it's a YouTube video. It's, it's one of my favorites. And basically, it was a guy coming in with the usual New York City protectiveness of himself in a room full of guys who wanted to engage. And I just basically said, you have a choice. You can sit in the background and watch and, and not engage and go about your life you know, with that New York City protectiveness on there. Or you can you can engage, you can lean in. And what lean in to me is very different in every situation. Most people uh, lean out when things get rough. When things are great, when there's great sex going on, which when it's fun, when we're making money, when things are good, we they lean in. But when things get challenging, we go to protective. Our ego arises to create a wall around us to protect. And so when you want to get to know someone, the most important thing is to build a safe container for the truth to be told. And when you have that safe container, when you have what's called rapport, when you have consent, then you can have signals and rules and concepts of how to speak the truth to your partner. Every time you lie, and I hold withholding as lying, so you have this thought, uh, the guy was really cute at the barista at the coffee place, but I can't tell my husband because I'll get jealous. What you do is you create a little more distance between you and your partner. And so leaning in means to create the containers to tell the truth about everything. And I mean, everything. I mean, not like every single thought you've had during the day, but the important ones to lean in and say, hey, honey, um, do you have 15 minutes tonight? for our safe talk, you know, name whatever you want. We used to call it truth moments, but do you have 15 minutes for our safe talk? And, you know, lock the doors, have the kids handled, turn off your phones, be with your partner and start to tell these little delicate truths so they can know you and actually be in relationship with you rather than the facade that most of us sell to our partners. I just have to pause on that idea because it's such a powerful one. How much do you, so when you're starting to practice that, did you find in the beginning that you were sharing a lot more? And then, for example, like you notice the cute barista and maybe there's a low level of guilt, which caused you to hide that thing. Yeah. Um, and then you start sharing it and you realize there's no punishment coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And so it actually becomes less of a charged guilty experience. So over time, you don't need to share that anymore. Yeah. Every time you get a turn on, only until the charge goes away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I- I'm trying to understand what it would feel like or look like to do that fre- frequently in your life. It it just, it's, it's a flow, if you think about it. When you have a practice withholding, and most of us do, then you start to, how much energy do you put into withholding? I can't tell him this because of that, I'll do this. And then all of a sudden you have a rationalization on top of that thought. And then you have proof around your rationalization. And all of a sudden you're like building a court case of why your silence is legitimate. They're called white lies. But white lies to me are the killer of intimacy. Because I can tell you this, that thing, that original core thought 
is, is usually the most interesting thing about you or one of the most interesting things about you. What is it about the cute barista that actually turned you on? What was it? And is there something missing? Is there something you want? But because we're so afraid, because we'd rather be safe than real, we hide it from our partners. And so what we do is we hide the most interesting part. Now, I think to your question, you don't want to vomit your entire, you know, blah, 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 you know like I, the 27 baristas that you're attracted to. Like you don't want to do that all in one sitting, but you want to build a practice. You want to build a <laughs> commitment. You And when you get uh, deep with your partner, then they come out as soon as they happen. And I'll, I'll just be vulnerable. My wife and I uh, are in a rough patch. We've been in a rough patch for a year. Again, it's not because of anything wrong. It's because she believes in her spiritual path and my spiritual. I look at her spiritual path and like, you're nuts. That's crazy. I don't believe what you're talking about. And I truly respect her spiritual path. So she started talking again about buying a house in Los Angeles, which is a big commitment. And I said to her a couple nights ago, I said, I don't know. From my perspective, I don't know if our relationship is stable enough for me to want to invest in a house with you, which is not something a woman wants to hear, especially in a five-year relationship. But it was the most honest thing because if I hid that, then I'd have to create distance for her not to find it and rationalization and legal cases, et cetera, et cetera. So instead, by saying it, she's like, okay, and we have enough practice. She goes, okay, that's really good to know. Let's talk about that. And it became an invitation for intimacy rather than this thing I was hiding that she could feel but not really understand. That's fairly, that's masterful. And for her to respond, not taking it as a criticism mm -hmm. of her or a sense of uh, existential instability. Does she belong to you? Are you still to, you know, are you, all of the things we often lean into relationship for. Mm -hmm. Do you still want me? Right. Wait, if you're not going to buy a house with me, you know, that's so powerful that you could be so both real and present, like sitting in the complexity of the response together. Mm. And it's hard. I don't, you know, it's hard. It, it, and again, Morgan, my wife, has done the work. She, yeah. she has her own practice. She's, you know, most of us. What most of our are is we don't have our own internal fortitude, our own self-love. I call it, mm. uh, for men, own self-esteem. We don't have our own self-esteem motor inside of us. So what do we do is we look externally for validation. We're external mm -hmm. validation junkies. For men, mm -hmm. that's having a hot woman who's willing to have sex with us. That's pretty much it. That's the, that's the best form of external validation. Then there's cars and money and power and stock and blah, blah, blah. When you have an addiction to external validation, when you don't mm -hmm. have your own intestinal fortitude, you're at the mercy of the external. You're, ex you're at the mercy of the woman. And when mm -hmm. you're at the mercy of the woman, that means that you can't disrupt the status quo that exists. And so what do you do? Mm -hmm. Withhold. And so for men, it's about building your self-esteem. Self-esteem is built upon esteemable acts doing the things that have you feel good. When you have your own self-esteem, then you have the space, the opportunity to tell the truth. And then from the truth is where the optimal relationships occur. Beautiful. So the idea that self-esteem is built on esteemable acts is very interesting. Uh, it's also got a little masculine bias towards action, which we all like to point to 
the things we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you keep mentioning spiritual path, which to me is about, has been about non-action, about sinking into the field that supports all things, regardless of what you do. There's this big self, this deep permanent soul self that is always esteemed, can never not be esteemed, is always connected, is nature. Mm. And sort of getting in touch with that while at the same time acting from that in the world in in ways that you can, you know, that are in line with that insight or that value set. Mm-hmm. Um, so how is that part of the practice? How, how does the sort of sinking in mm-hmm. and getting to know who am I really below this facade, the sort of meditation practice or other spiritual practice fit into this mm-hmm. uh grounded ability to tell the truth yeah well i have a cheeky answer to it and the answer is okay. <laughs> not taking an action is an action in itself okay so uh your dad says something to you that in the past has always triggered you mm-hmm. blah 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 you know all of a sudden uh-huh. it initiates all the programs of i want my dad's approval you've done uh-huh. enough spiritual work and there's no action to it. There's just allowing. There's a seeing. And my father highly disapproved of me in my life. I mean, I was disowned at 30. On my 30th birthday, he disowned me by fax, uh, a fax machine. I got a seven-page fax basically disowning me, <laughs> um, which is a story in itself. And I spent uh, a good 10 years dealing, interacting with that feeling of, of not having my father's approval. On my 40th birthday, I sent him an email and saying, I take responsibility for this. I'm interested in having a relationship with you. And I, so those 10 years uh, just taught me that his, honestly, his bullshit is his bullshit. And for me to understand that I don't need to respond. Now from 40 to 50, he died this year actually, uh, he kept throwing barbs at me. They came out differently, but there were still barbs. And the only difference was, is I was like, okay, that's his stuff. I don't need to act on that. I could just be in relationship. It's sort of like judo taking the enemy's, you know, the other other's force and turning it into my own power. And that enabled me to understand that I didn't need his validation. When he said nice things about me, it felt great. Didn't happen very often, but it felt great. But I didn't need it. And so the the there was an action and not taking any action. That is uh, again, back to the San Quentin piece, what happens to a lot of the men? The triggers are the triggers go. The triggers are still there, mm-hmm. but we talk about sitting in the fire mm-hmm. of your feelings and your emotion and not reacting to the trigger mm-hmm. and just letting yourself melt and then respond from this wisdom place. Mm-hmm. When I was doing anger work, um, my my first foray into anger work, I would stand with my feet really planted on the ground, and I would call to mind an image of my highest and most centered esteem, self-esteemed self, like as a as a vision. And then I would have the allow the anger about whatever the topic was at hand to rise up from the edges of the body. And you'll and you notice as it rises up that it hits sort of the throat area. And at that point, like you have usually what a woman will do, and maybe a man, I don't know, Mm. is stuff it back down. Like just push that back down into the body so it doesn't come out. And then after enough stuffing, it comes out as an explosion. Mm -hmm. It comes out as a verbal anger. Mm -hmm. But when you feel it rising and then you marry it with this sort of vision, visioning practice of the higher consciousness, 
then the words can come out if they need to come out in a, from a grounded and centered strength. They're strong and they're clear, but they're not um, carrying the, the, the charge of all of this old repression mm. with them. And, and so you, you are, you're moving anger into power. Mm-hmm. And that's what the men in the program have also learned mm-hmm. to do by inserting this cushion. Beautiful. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, I agree with you on the, on the um, women owning their rage and anger piece so much. So, oh, I don't even know where to go. <laughs> I just feel like, you, you know, you're, you're talking about such, I expected that we'd be talking a little bit more about male-female communication, traditional gender roles, okay. sexuality, but this conversation on getting real and wanting freedom more than you want performative response mm-hmm. uh, for yourself and your partner is such a rich uh, place to explore. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you said something about that's the most interesting part of you. Mm-hmm. I have this friend who is a pretty famous guy and he's so uh, worried about his reputation that he go- has a go-to consistent fantasy of having a, a, a studio apartment with nothing in it but white curtains and a bed and a mistress that he can meet there once or twice a week and tell all of his secrets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm like, well, why don't you just tell your wife all those secrets? He goes, no, she'd never understand. Mm-hmm. We've been together too long. It would derail things. But this, this is like, and even the way he articulates the space as this virginal space, as this heavenly space of purity and where I can be fully me. I, I think we underestimate the sheer uh, aphrodisiac quality of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell you a story about that, actually. Uh, this is one of the first chapters of my book. Uh, I had a client uh, who was a high-end New York escort, you know, 800, 900 bucks an hour, 1200 bucks an hour. And she was amazing. And she was also a PhD candidate for romantic language. So one of those brilliant, insanely awesome persons. Anyway, she would tell me stories about her work. And she said the most interesting thing. She said that most men that visit her or pay for her services would rather do the things they're doing with her with their wives. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because she was she was a gorgeous. She was young. She was sexy. And I said, Really? Like they'd rather, you know, I had this mental image of an older woman and, you know, my biases against that. And she's like, yeah, they would much rather do, you know, these practices and these these fetishes and Tantra and BDSM with them because the wife wouldn't even start the conversation. They're paying me eight, you know, 800 to 5,000 to 10,000 to 100,000 dollars a year because they don't feel safe enough to tell their wives. They'd rather be doing these things with. And so it's kind of a macro example of it, these little micro tears that happen in our relationship from the same thing, the little things, the the fears for men. I'm afraid to tell my wife that I don't like my job or I spent all this money on this PhD education. I really want to be an artist or um, uh, like I have bisexual thoughts in my head and they're driving me crazy. And there's this guy at work that I feel attracted to, but I can't tell my partner because of what the reaction was. All these thousands of micro tears in the relationship. And if you can just say to your partner, I wanna know who you are. I really wanna know who you are. I may not like 
what you say. I may get triggered. I might go a little nutty when you say things, but really I want to enroll you. I want to have this partnership with you where we can just tell each other everything because that's how I want to live my life rather than the muted, contained, stayed, you know, status quo of what most relationships are. I want to be something more with you. Are you willing to play? And then from there, you can create a game. The game doesn't have to go fast. You can go slow, step by step and truth by truth. But just to have that direction, that's where, to me, the most sensation and the most intimacy arises. As you were describing that, I felt this internal silent scream for all the parties involved in that story. Mm-hmm. You know, this sort of longing to be as to be close with the person you're committed to being close to. And what you when you said those little white lies that that put distance uh, between you and your partner, these these intimacy killers, you know, they're when you can't see and navigate to a way to tell your truth. It's it's um, the that sense of separation, like when you're a baby and you want your mother's milk and you just can't quite get mm-hmm. it or can't quite get enough like this little hunger. Um, that is unsa- insatiable. Yeah. And the gaslighting, and- the gaslighting, uh, you know, gaslighting is uh, it's a relatively new term uh, based on a movie from a while ago. But basically when you say something and your partner says you're crazy, and this happens all the time. My wife, Morgan, actually taught me this, the process of validation. You know, in the pe- when we start, first started dating, she would say something. I'd be like, no, you're wrong because of this, this, my masculine, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, listen, you can disagree with me. But first, validate me. Say, I understand how you would feel. I get, be in my shoes for five seconds. And then when you have a counter concept, not argument, a counter concept, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive that a lot more when I know you get me. And I was like, oh, that's genius. You know, male, female, women validate a lot more than men. And so I just learned the slow process of like, Okay, slowing down and, and and being in her world for five seconds, ten seconds, a minute, an hour, has so improved our relationship. And so there's so much gaslighting, there's so much invalidation happening. Uh, you know, is something going on between us? No, everything's fine. I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy, <laughs> which happens all the time. And just like ah, I know something's going on. Did you get turned on by that cute barista again? Like it's just, it, it, it's just like we know we can feel it. Well, when to confront it, something different, but we know something's going on. And so you can just give your partner what I call reality. Yeah, I checked out that barista. He's looking good today. And like ah, he is looking good today. Let's have you know, what would you do with him? And all of a sudden, you can have these really fun conversations. I have this amazing couple, Don and Martha Rosenthal, who were 45 years together and they were doing relationship coaching. And he said something similar to your insight there. I find it helpful to join first. Mm -hmm. Like whenever somebody would say something and the immediate instinct was to respond with argumentation, Mm -hmm. he would say, I find it helpful to join first. And then you would go back, you backtrack and um, he he was really, uh, they were masterful. That was an interesting ex- experience because they started in open relationship back in the 60s mm-hmm. um, and 70s. And then they gradually became monogamous over 20 years and just decided to pursue the rest of their life in monogamy, mm-hmm. uh, which is the inverse of what happens in a lot of long arc relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, and there was one other thing you said. Uh, about 
the energy it takes to repress a truth. Mm. And I was, I, I've been working um, with Thomas Hubel, who's a, co a collective trauma master person for the last few years. And Thomas uses the analogy of the refrigerator in your house mm. that, you know, it's running all the time trying to keep things frozen mm -hmm. or cold and it's draining energy from the energy supply. And that's what's happening when you have frozen or locked up places in your body that you're trying to isolate. You don't want to feel that you, you're, you're, it's a complete power draw on the rest of your system to try to keep the, those things frozen mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And that by releasing and melting and putting truth and light into some of those spots, you'll be surprised by how much more energy you feel for all the things in your life. Completely, 100%, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Well, what's the most exciting thing for you right now? What are you exploring and, and working on now? We have a teacher um, that we work with a guy, I, uh, Morgan, is a, a pure devotee. His name is Masahaje. And uh, it is really just an internal meditation and feeling of the frequencies inside. And we do meditations uh, twice a day with him together. And it just it's a spark of conversation. And the thing that just arose for me um, specifically was about I was fired from a job about five weeks ago, and I quit. I'm a fractional CFO mostly, so I have multiple clients, and I held four or five clients at a time. And uh, one one fired me, and I quit the other within two weeks, and I didn't really understand why. And then in my meditation, I saw that both situations were somewhat abusive. Both were run mm. by men, masculine men, who were good men. But the way they were treating me, the way they were guarding and not seeing who I was, I felt uh, abused. I felt abusive to me. And I thought it was interesting that I kicked both out of my system. Uh, and I have new jobs, so it's, uh, and the, the money's still there, but I kicked both and up-leveled from, from clients now who truly understand me and see me. And so hmm. 20 years of work, you know, father stuff, mother wound, father wound, sexuality work, you know, here I am, my twenty-first year, whatever, of of doing personal development, and still finding new kernels and of who I want to be and who I want to be in relationship with, and not putting up with with people who don't treat me well. And so that was a really exceptional thing, and I, I really uh, give credit to Moss and the work because that enabled me to truly uh, feel and see in this meditation. So that's kind of the most exciting thing at the moment. That um, I think I'm so happy for you that you found that. You know where that I'll talk for a minute from the perspective of a business owner mm. who works a lot with D 2 C. Um, you know where I've done that is with customers mm. and with social media bullying. I have real people who answer the phone on my customer service line. Mm -hmm. There's only four of us on the team full time. Mm -hmm. The rest is all contractors, mm -hmm. and we're running a you know a seven figure business, and they are so committed to the mission. That when people are nasty to them, I have a zero tolerance policy. Mm -hmm. I, I personally, they say, if you get any nasty grams, send them to me mm -hmm. and I'll respond on behalf of the team. And sometimes it's like, I'm sure you're a much nicer, you're much nicer in person, but what you said was inappropriate mm -hmm. and insulting. Mm -hmm. And I would invite you to reframe it and to apologize to the team, but otherwise, please, you know, I, I have blocked customers because of mm -hmm. that. 
like I will say it happens very infrequently, but deciding that a civil relationship Mm -hmm. between all people, civil, respectful, you might disagree on something, but that the tonality is the the desire and the willingness to see Mm. that everyone is going, is doing the best that they can Mm -hmm. in that given moment. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say the response that one gets from the boundary setting mm-hmm. and the releasing of the people who are are dragging on the energy is more than made up for by the people who are coming in mm-hmm. you know who, who it just makes space for the good mm-hmm. what's this guy's name moss massage s a j a d y he's he's a trippy guy but he's great he's totally great he was Amazing. Uh, I just interviewed him with Morgan actually on my Facebook wall. Um, huh. So I think it was a week ago, like July 10th. Um, and he'll be on my podcast. He'll show up my podcast in August, September. But yeah, he was great. He was, it was a really great interview. What's going on with your own creative work and creative process? What are you, are you writing more? I have a second book in the work. It's, it's a working, it don't have a working title yet, but it's the concept of antagonistic versus collaborative. I built a scale of how the world is really taught to be antagonistic and by noticing and moving it from antagonistic to collaborative uh, is the concept. Um, I've mm. been slammed with projects on my CFO side, so my brain's been a little overloaded, but I feel um, in a couple of months I'll have a little more room to finish it. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's how to bring these pragmatic concepts of uh, you know antagonist versus collaborative in relationship and business with your kids with yourself and just creating very specific tight little uh, lessons of how to implement and how just to move from this you know fist up you know show me your duke's position into an opened arm collaborative because that's where intimacy occurs most of us you know with our fist up but as soon as you go okay I want to understand. I don't understand right now. What are you talking about? But I want to understand. Please tell me. That's how relationships improve, just with this one change of posture. I have two responses. The first one is, have you heard or read Humankind? It's a. It came out in April. I don't know if I know that one. Um, it's a complete relook at all of these experiments that we, like the, the one Milgram with the, Stan- the Stanford Prison mm-hmm, Experiment, mm-hmm. He went back to all the original data from five or six of these famous experiments and then explored a whole bunch of other topics that have sort of confirmed uh, the bias that we have that men, that, that, human, that humans are, um, have dark tendencies. Mm. And what he found was in all of those cases that the researchers sensationalized their findings mm. to reinforce the belief of the, the antagonism model, basically, of what you're saying. And that that, in a way, became a nocebo, mm. and people began to uh, took that intellectual medicine, mm-hmm. that idea medicine, and then outpicture that in the rest of their life. Mm. And point by point, chapter by chapter, he takes down all of those ideas. So by the end, you're left with the fundamental goodness mm-hmm. and desire for co-creation that exists among people. Mm. Um, it's a very powerful book, very beautifully written. Um, I'm I'm doing it on audio because we're driving. Uh, avoiding airports with the COVID, yeah. but uh, in particularly in light of this book, like I think you'd, I think you'd really I love it. Thank you so enjoy much. it. Yeah, and I forgot the second okay. one, Robert. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. No worries at all. <laughs> well, 
I it's just been a, pl- a total joy. Likewise. I didn't realize how many points of overlap we had. Indeed. And I will put all of these links in the show notes. And I hope to meet you in person I, one I day. Like that. We're in the same city, so let's do that. I'll see you soon and be well. Right, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman Pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world. So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day, no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. See you next time.